The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, the ninth chapter and the sixth verse. The sixth verse in the ninth chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Let me again remind you of the context of this important statement by reading to you the previous five verses. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he answered, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Now you notice that there is a difference in the versions with regard to these verses, and that the revised version, I believe I'm right in saying, which you have in front of you, leaves out certain words which I've just been reading, such as, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks, and also, and he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? It goes on straight to the statement, the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city. But I adhere to the authorized version because it seems to me to be perfectly clear that what we have here is essential to a true understanding of what the Lord said to Saul. It was in reply to Saul's question that he told him to go into the city. Saul had made his request, what would thou have me to do? And the Lord gives the reply, so that I'm quite sure that this fuller account, this fuller version, which we are given here in this authorized version, is in accord with the facts. And it is to this particular statement that is recorded here that I'm calling your attention once more. We are engaged in considering together the, the account which is given in the Scriptures of how this man, Saul of Tarsus, became the mighty Apostle Paul. And we are doing so in order that we may study it, in, in order to learn for ourselves some of the great principles that govern this great question of how one is to become a Christian. That is the practical object which we have in calling attention to this. We are not coming together simply out of a general interest. We are not animated by some mere antiquarian interest. These things are entrancing in and of themselves, but frankly, I myself am concerned about them simply because they do show us the way 
to have uh, the same life as was given to this man, Saul of Tarsus, the life which made him a Christian man. And therefore I say that it is of great importance that we should study what we have here. The Apostle himself encourages us to do so, as I pointed out on several occasions. He says that he can be regarded as a kind of pattern, a kind of example of what happens in salvation. And taking him at his word, we are studying his own case. Now, we've looked at it from various standpoints. We've looked at the hindrances, the obstacles, the things that keep a man from becoming a Christian. We've seen them in the case of Saul. We've seen that, in essence, they're the same in all other cases. And then we came to consider the climactic moment, this great event which took place on the way to Damascus. Because it was as the result of this that this man, Saul of Tarsus, ceased to be the blaspheming persecutor of Christ and his people and became the greatest preacher of the gospel that the church has ever known. And it all happened, I say, in that way. And we have been considering it together. The essence of the matter can be put in this form. Here on this road to Damascus, the apostle was arrested and caused to look at himself and to see himself as he really was. That happened to him because of the second thing, which was that he came face to face with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now there, in those two statements, you have the essence of Christianity. No man can be a Christian without knowing himself. No man can be a Christian without knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's precisely what happened to this man on the road to Damascus. Now, I've been emphasizing, and I want to repeat it, lest anybody should misunderstand. I am not saying that we must have exactly the same experience in all its concomitants. I say we must know the essence of the experience. But there are certain factors and features which vary from case to case. It is given to very few to see the risen Lord as the Apostle did. Indeed, I doubt whether anybody has ever seen the risen Lord in the way that this man did see him since. People have testified to visions. This wasn't a vision. He actually saw the risen Lord of glory, and that made him an Apostle. He can argue later, have I not seen the Lord? He had seen him. Now, I say that doesn't happen to all. But... While that doesn't happen to all, and while certain dramatic elements in the story are often absent in people's experiences, and therefore we don't insist upon them, we do say that the principles which come into play and into operation are always present and must always be present. Because the Apostle Paul, <coughs> as a Christian, he is no different from any other Christian. He describes himself as the chief of sinners. And as a Christian, he is just a man who has been saved by the grace of God. As every other single Christian, it doesn't matter how unknown or how humble. The dramatic character varies, but the thing itself is the same. And we started by saying that what happens 
when a man becomes a Christian is that he is born again, that God operates upon his soul by the Holy Spirit, and that happens in every single case. So there are certain things that must of necessity be the same in every single case. And it is to those things that I am calling attention in particular. Now then, we've arrived at this point. We see that as the result of this which happened to him, certain other things happened to the apostle. And here are the things that happened. Having been brought face to face with himself and what he was doing, having been brought face to face with the Lord, I read that he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what would thou have me to do? Now then, here are the consequences of this great change which we are considering together. And it is very important that we should consider them together. Because these things, again, I say, are common to all cases. Let me hasten to add once more, not to the same degree, not always to the same intensity, but they are always present. In other words, I am laying it down as being vital and essential doctrine that the things that are summarized in this sixth verse, in this authorized version, are always present in the case of every single Christian. And the three elements are the astonishment, the trembling, and the submission which is expressed in the form of the question, what wouldst thou have me to do? In other words, my contention is this, that when a man is a Christian, the whole of his personality is engaged and involved. He receives the truth with his mind, but it has an effect upon his emotions, and in turn it has an effect upon his will. Now, it is an essential part of my whole position to say that this is always and of necessity true. Once more, again, because of misunderstanding, let me hasten to say that the intensity of the emotion varies tremendously from case to case. The intensity with which the will comes into operation also varies from case to case. But my contention is that unless a man's heart and his will are involved as well as his mind, that he is not a Christian at all, whatever may have happened to him. Now, I know that there are many who would object to this teaching, to this doctrine. They say, but you are now insisting that, men, that, if, that we should all have certain feelings. And they say, isn't, isn't it dangerous to insist upon that? The scriptures do not say that you must have certain feelings. All the scriptures say, they say, is this, that thou must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that if you do believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saved. And therefore, they say, any man who says, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, must be saved and must of necessity be a Christian. Now, I am taking leave to question that statement. And I am questioning it for this reason. I regard this as something which is of the most vital importance as I am going to try to show you. Now let me put it in this form. I am not saying that it is the business of a preacher or an evangelist 
deliberately to work up people's emotions. Indeed, my position is that he should never do this. Neither am I saying that it is the business of the preacher to call men to feel something. The call of preaching is to believe. There I think we're all agreed. It is not that I'm saying that emotion is a value in and of itself. It is not that I am suggesting for a moment that emotions alone are sufficient. But what I am saying, and I want to press it, is this. That emotion is inevitable and must be present to some degree if a man has truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me put it in this way. There is nothing which is perhaps so important for our souls and our eternal destiny as that we should draw a distinction between intellectual assent to truth and a saving and a true belief in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. I regard it as the most important statement which a man can ever make from a Christian pulpit. There is nothing I say which is of more importance than to draw a very clear and sharp distinction between a mere intellectual assent to truth and a saving belief of and acceptance of that truth. Now let me establish what I'm saying. The Bible exhorts us to draw that very distinction. Now let me show you how it does that. It teaches us very clearly that there are such people as what we may describe as temporary believers. People who think that they have believed savingly and that they're Christian, who nevertheless have never been Christian. Where does it teach that? Well, let me show you. Our Lord himself teaches that very plainly and clearly in the parable of the sower. You remember it, the men who went out to sow seed. Some fell by the wayside. Some fell on the stony ground and some fell amongst thorns. And the other fell into the good ground. But you remember what he tells us about the first groups? That it sprang up at once. It seemed to be life. They seemed to be Christians. But subsequently it was quite clear that they'd never had life in themselves. There was nothing real there. A temporary appearance which disappeared and vanished. That is our Lord's own teaching. And he obviously teaches it in order to warn us to be careful and to test ourselves. But he does it again. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us that certain people will come to him on the great day of judgment and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name done many wonderful works? But he will profess unto them and say, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That can have only one meaning. And that is that those people thought and imagined that they were Christians. They call him Lord. They say that they've believed in him. They're addressing him as Lord. And they've always thought that this belief of theirs was enough. And they say they've done this and that in his name. And yet he will say unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. 
Is there any other possible explanation of that, save the one I'm suggesting to you? That it isn't enough for a man to say that he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. A true belief includes more than that. And the more than that is in the realm of the emotions and of the will. The things that Paul, the Saul of Tarsus, displayed on this road to Damascus. But there is much further evidence. I can't give it to you all this evening. Read the 13th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. And there again you will find our Lord says exactly the same thing. He says many at that day will knock at the door and say, let us in. And he will not let them in. Somebody had asked him the question, are there be few or many that are saved? And his answer was, you strive to enter in at the straight gate. For at that day, many will seek to enter in and shall not be able to. They say, we've always believed, but they're not in. And then, of course, finally you get it, do you not, in the famous parable of the wise and the foolish virgins? The whole point of that picture of the foolish virgins is that they thought they were Christian. They assumed they were Christian. It's a parable spoken to test profession, deliberately to test profession. It's not a parable spoken to the world at large. It's a parable spoken to people who think that they're believers. There are true believers and those who think they're believers, and it shows you the difference and the distinction between them. It's the whole point of the parable. Very well, then I say our Lord clearly teaches that there are temporary believers, people who've given an intellectual assent and thought all is well. They thought they'd believe, but they've not believed. Or let me put it in this second form. True belief always involves the heart and the will as well as the mind. Now the Apostle Paul puts that twice over in the one epistle to the Romans, in the 6th chapter and in the 17th verse, he puts it like this. But God be thanked, he says, that he were the servants of sin. But you're no longer the servants of sin, you're now Christians. How? Well, this is how he puts it. But ye have obeyed, there's the will, from the heart, there's the emotion, what? The form of sound doctrine or words delivered unto you. The belief that they've accepted with the mind. But you notice that in defining the Christian, he doesn't say you've believed the truth. He says you have obeyed from the heart. The whole personality is involved. Christianity, my friend, takes up the whole person. And if it doesn't take up the whole person, I say there is no value in the supposed belief. Take the apostle saying it again in the 10th chapter of that epistle to the Romans in the 9th verse. He says, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. The heart is the center of the personality. It includes the emotions and the will as well as the mind. The whole man, he again emphasizes, is involved in a true belief. You see, it's a very simple thing for a man to say, Lord, Lord. It's a very simple thing for a man who's asked, well now, do you believe this? To say yes. And then he's told you're a Christian. And he assumes he's a Christian. Not of necessity, says the scripture. You've got to test that. As you value your soul, and as you value your eternal destiny. Someone may say, but aren't you shutting the door against us? I am repeating the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
who says, strive to enter in, who says, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life and few there be that find it. Not broad is the gate and wide is the way that leadeth unto life and many go crowding in at it. Not at all, the exact opposite. And it is his own word that exhorts us and pleads with us to test and to examine ourselves lest we be deluding ourselves with a mere intellectual assent to the truth. But let me go on. The Bible always describes true believers to us in terms which include, I say, this whole personality. They describe the Christian as one who not only believes in the Lord, but who loves him. Whom having not seen, ye love, in whom though now we see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. I say on the basis of that, that you can't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ without rejoicing in him. It's impossible. And unless what you think is your belief has led you to rejoice, well, I say you'd better examine it again and make sure of it. The Christian in the New Testament is one who rejoices in Christ. He loves him. He's discovered a joy and a happiness. Look at the book of the Acts of the Apostles. What a lyrical book it is. What happy people these were. Gladly being thrown to the lions in the arena, giving up their lives rather than deny him. Why, feeling is involved. The will is engaged. You cannot believe on the Lord Jesus Christ truly in a purely intellectual manner. It is contrary to the very nature of belief to do this. And the character of the truth also makes it impossible. Truly to see him and to know him affects the whole man as it did Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. It must do that. His character, his person alone, demands that and insists upon it. And that is the, the scriptural teaching. So I wind up this argument by putting it like this. There I've given it to you in the form of perfectly plain and explicit teaching. But all that is supported and substantiated by the cases which the Bible in its condescension gives us. I mean by that that if you examine the conversion of anybody in the Bible, you'll find that these things always happened. Saul of Tarsus is converted on the road to Damascus, and he was astonished, and he trembled, and he gave in. The Philippian jailer, in exactly the same way, trembled and was astonished and gave in and surrendered himself and experienced great joy. There is not a single case, I say, but that these elements are invariably present. Go through your scriptures, seek them out for yourselves, and I suggest to you that you will find it is always the case. Well, now then. All this which is taught so plainly in the scripture is confirmed abundantly by what happens in every period of revival. Now, fortunately, we can read the accounts of the great revivals that have taken place in the history of the Christian church. And what you find? Well, you will find invariably during periods of revivals that there have always been what are called phenomena. 
There has never yet been a true spiritual revival, but the people have manifested strange feelings. Sometimes there have been feelings of awe and alarm, but then they've been followed by great joy and ecstasy, invariably. It doesn't matter what country, it doesn't matter what century, it doesn't matter when or who the preacher was, it's quite immaterial. That is invariable in the case of a great revival. But what is a revival? Well, a revival is an unusual activity on the part of the Holy Spirit. An unusually intense activity on the part of the Holy Spirit. Yes, but it's still the activity of the Spirit. The only difference between a a normal period in the life of the church and a revival is the difference in the intensity. It is the same Holy Spirit that brings to conversion one soul in a meeting like this as may bring a hundred in a great period of revival. The same Spirit, the same work. And the Holy Spirit doesn't change. The Holy Spirit is the same always, as the Lord Jesus Christ is the same, yesterday and today and and forever, so is the Holy Spirit. And therefore I say that inevitably when he does the same work, there must of necessity be the same consequences. So that if you look at the teaching of the Word of God, if you substantiate it by the teaching of history, I think you are driven to the conclusion that for a man merely to say that he believes is not enough. But the true belief always leads to these further results and has these inevitable consequences. Well, now then. We are considering all that in the case of Saul of Tarsus. We've already considered one of them, that he was astonished. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Now, having considered his astonishment and the causes of it, we come on to the trembling. And I want to say just this, that as the apostle was astonished, And as all who become truly Christian must know something of this astonishment. I'm not concerned about the degree, but they must know the astonishment in some shape or form as we defined it last Sunday night. So I am adding that no man can become a Christian without knowing something likewise about this trembling. Saul of Tarsus trembled. Again, I repeat that everybody who comes becomes a Christian experiences something of this trembling. Not with the dramatic intensity of soul, perhaps, but it's there. It must be there for these reasons. Now, before I give you those reasons, let me say this. That I know as I expound this particular matter, I'm saying something which is highly distasteful at this present time. Indeed, is it going too far to say that the modern man regards this idea of trembling as being quite insulting? I am speaking of the average person because uh, I know and I welcome the fact that amongst those who do read a certain amount of philosophy and of theology, there has been a very welcome change in this respect. There was a very great Dane who lived just over a hundred years ago, he died just over a hundred years ago, called Kierkegaard. And he at any rate has taught most people this, 
that without what he calls fear and trembling, there is no true Christianity. One of his greatest books bore that very title, Fear and Trembling. And that idea, thank God, is beginning to come back. It should never have gone out, as I'm going to show. But it certainly has gone out. And the average person regards this as utterly insulting. He says, oh, this is something that belongs to the past. He said, people used to be terrified by the gospel. But of course, in those days, they believed in ghosts. They were primitive. They were unintelligent. They hadn't our culture, and they were not living in a scientific age. They could be alarmed and frightened by all sorts of things. But of course, they said, times have changed. We are no longer in that position, and we can't be frightened. Not only that, they feel that the gospel must be considered only in terms of God's love. And they dislike also the whole idea of justice and of punishment and of retribution and especially the whole conception of the wrath of God. I don't think I need waste time over this. These ideas have become utterly abhorrent to the modern men. And he regards a return to this kind of thing as a going back and putting back the clock of time. And another reason for this is, of course, that the modern men uh, tends to exalt reason too much. And his view of Christianity is that it's just a very reasonable, sensible view of a good life which men can live. And that the preaching of the gospel should be just an appeal to people to use common sense and to be reasonable, not to do things that are wrong and harmful, and to live a good life and to be decent and moral and so on. That's his whole conception of Christianity. So this idea of trembling and of the fear of God, he dislikes and utterly abominates. And the result of all this is that they say that they're not going to be frightened into salvation by anybody or by anybody's preaching. Well, now, what is the reply to this? Well, let me put it quite simply. The last idea I have in my mind as I stand in this pulpit is to frighten anybody into salvation. For this good reason, that my view of salvation is such that I know perfectly well that neither I nor anybody else can ever frighten anybody into salvation. Indeed, I go much further. I cannot bring anybody to salvation at all. It isn't my work. It's the work of God, the Holy Spirit. I know that I might succeed in frightening people, but I can't frighten anybody into salvation. That is peculiarly the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. So that I am entirely free from any desire to, to attempt to frighten anybody. I'll go further. Not only do I not try to frighten anybody, I think I can say honestly in the presence of God, I never try to play on people's pleasurable emotions either. I don't stand here telling stories and tales and uh, being sentimental and thus causing people to weep and in that condition uh, try to press them to Christ. I do not believe in making a direct approach to the emotions nor to the will. I never plead with people to decide for Christ. I never invite them to come forward either here or there or anywhere else. I don't bring pressure. Why not? Well, I say again, this is the work of the Holy Ghost. So I'm not concerned about these, these aspects of the question at all. My statement is simply this. That the business of the preacher is to present men and women with the truth. And I go further. 
I say that when men and women do see and know and recognize the truth, it will invariably and always lead to a certain amount of trembling. What was it that made Paul of Saul of Tarsus tremble on the road to Damascus? It was the truth. The truth about himself, the truth about that blessed face that he saw there in the heavens looking down upon him, and the realization of all the consequences. My dear friends, my business is simply to hold the truth before you. And I say this in addition, that if you see it, you will tremble at it as I myself tremble at it. I'm not to make you tremble. It's the truth that causes men to tremble. And I go further and I say that unless it does, you've not seen it. Of necessity, as I'm going to show you, it must lead to this consequence. But surely this ought to appeal to us all as a general principle. How foolish we are sometimes when we think we are being very reasonable. A man says, I'm not going to be frightened. But my dear friend, there are certain circumstances and conditions in which you ought to be frightened. And if you are not frightened, you're a fool. If you are in a house on fire and you didn't know it was on fire and somebody shouted to you, look here, if you don't come down quickly, it'll be too late. Throw yourself down. What if you stood and said, I'm not going to be frightened by what you say? Is that being sensible or reasonable? Not to be frightened when confronted by certain facts is just foolhardiness. If a surgeon tells you that you've got a growth within, within your body that will kill you unless you allow him to take it out, if you don't pay attention to him and if you're not somewhat frightened by his verdict, well, there's only one thing to say, you're a fool. You should be frightened by it. If you don't face facts and draw the logical deductions from them, you're being utterly irrational. And my contention is that when a man rarely sees the truth as it is unfolded in this book, it is bound to lead to fear and trembling. Let me establish it again in the same way as I put my original principle tonight. And incidentally, I'm taking you through this bit of argumentation because I know that this kind of thing is so infrequently said today and so unpopular, and yet it's the very truth of the Bible as I see it. Listen. The Old Testament teaches this everywhere. What is the worst thing that the Old Testament has got to say against the ungodly and the irreligious? Isn't it this? There is no fear of God before his eyes. That's the worst thing it can say about him. The fool, the unbeliever, the man who's going to perdition is a man of whom the simple truth is that there is no fear of God before his eyes. Or listen to it putting the same thing positively. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Are you a philosopher? Are you out for wisdom? Do you want true understanding with respect to yourself and life and being and everything? Here, says the Bible, is the answer. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is no wisdom apart from it. Oh, yes, sir, someone, but that's Old Testament. Very well, then, let us turn into the New Testament. Listen to this. Here is a statement in the New Testament. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
Let us come before him with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? That's New Testament teaching. Ah, yes, sir, someone, but that's out of an epistle. And after all, I don't go by these epistles. I believe only what Jesus says. That's a common statement, isn't it? Well, listen. Go and look at the Lord Jesus Christ as he goes into the presence of God in prayer. And listen to what he says. This is how he prays. Holy Father, reverence or godly fear. That's how he prayed. But listen to his teaching. Do you know that five times in the gospel according to St. Matthew alone without taking in the other gospels? Our Lord used this phrase. He said there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Lord Jesus Christ said that five times in the gospel of Matthew. The very incarnation of God's love. He whom men put us over against the Apostle Paul. He is the one who teaches that there shall be weeping. And gnashing of teeth. Oh, there is the teaching, but the examples again confirm it to the very hilt. Go back to the very beginning to the Garden of Eden and look at Adam and Eve after they've sinned against God. What do they do? They hear the voice that they'd heard so often in the cool of the evening, but instead of running to him to greet him, they go and hide themselves. Why? They're frightened, they're terrified, they're trembling. Even Abraham, who is the friend of God, we are told that a great fear and terror came upon him when God gave him one of his most glorious manifestations. The psalmist ever cries out for mercy. Have mercy upon me, O God, he says. Look at a favored man like Isaiah when he's given a vision of God and is called to his high prophetic calling. What is, the, what is the effect of it upon him? He cries out and says, I am a man of unclean lips. He sinks to the ground. He's conscious of unworthiness. All the prophets teach precisely the same thing. Come into the New Testament. Look at the father of John the Baptist when he is there doing his duty in the temple and a vision is given to him. And what happens to him? Well, he trembles. He was filled with fear as the angel addressed him. The same thing happened to the Virgin Mary. Look at a great Roman official called Felix listening to the preaching of the Apostle Paul. And what we are told about him is this, that as Paul spake, Felix trembled. His knees beat one against another. Why? Could he be frightened by a prisoner like Paul who was in his power? And yet he trembled. What was it? It was the conviction of the Holy Ghost. And look at the Philippian jailer likewise. And how he trembled. My dear friends, my case is that the realization of the truth of necessity leads to this fear and trembling. Well, why does it? Why should it do so? Well, the answer is given everywhere in the Bible. And whether you accept my teaching tonight or not depends entirely upon whether you accept the Bible or not. If you put up your own ideas about God and about these things, well, of course, you won't possibly agree with what I'm saying. But for myself, 
I know nothing about God except what I find in the Bible. I know nothing about his being, about his ultimate being, save what he has been pleased to reveal. And if you claim that you know more or know something different, I ask you, how have you arrived at your knowledge? What sanction have you got for your knowledge? Can you establish it? Can you prove it? Can you demonstrate it? On what is it being based? If you believe this, this is what you find. Salvation means coming face to face with God. What happened to Saul of Tarsus on that road was that he saw the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity. The other people saw nothing but a light shining above the brightest shining of the sun at its very noonday height. They didn't see, but he saw the face and the glory of it all. And he trembled, as all who come anywhere near to God have invariably and inevitably have trembled. What causes the trembling? Well, it is first and foremost the majesty and the greatness and the glory and the power of God. My dear friends, if you've never trembled, it is because you've never really known God. We can't conceive of nor even imagine the greatness and the glory and the might and the majesty of God. I read with you that 19th chapter of the book of Exodus. In order that we might have some faint conception of it, do you remember the trembling and the fear and the mountain smoking? God had come down. But you get exactly the same thing in the 14th chapter of that book of Exodus where God leads his people through the Red Sea and crushes and quells and overwhelms Pharaoh and his hosts. You can't read that 14th chapter of Exodus without feeling the presence and the might and the glory and the majesty of God. And no one, I say, comes anywhere near God without being conscious of that and trembling the very greatness, the might, the marvel of it all will come to the New Testament counterpart. Did you notice what happened to the Apostle Peter on that occasion? You read that fifth chapter of Luke's Gospel again and you'll find that at the beginning Peter answers our Lord very pertly. He seems ready to argue with him. And, he, and then you see our Lord works a great miracle. And the effect of the miracle upon the stout-hearted Peter was this. He fell at his feet and he said, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. I invite you to go through the four Gospels and to read the account of every miracle that our Lord ever wrought, and you will find that in some shape or form we are always told that the effect of that miracle was that the people were frightened. They were filled with a sense of fear. They said, Who is this? We have seen great things today. We have seen the mighty power of God. And whenever they felt it and saw it, its effect upon them was to frighten them and to alarm them. Why? Well, it's a manifestation of power and of glory and of majesty and of might. My dear friend, any manifestation of power is alarming and it's terrifying. 
And that is why any man in his senses is always conscious of a sense of fear when he's in the presence of death. If you can smile at death and say it's nothing, it's because of your ignorance. Death and life. God is present. The whole mystery of being. It's always alarming and frightening. The unknown. The unseen. And the glory and the power and the might and the majesty of it all. And then with this there is the holiness of God. Saul of Tarsus saw in that face a beauty and a purity and a cleanliness and a holiness such as he'd never seen before, and it was blinding. I had occasion to quote this verse this morning. I quote it tonight. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. You can't look into the face of the blazing sun at noonday, especially as you go further south. You have to shield your eyes with glasses. You can't stand it. Multiply that by infinity, and that's the holiness of God. Have you seen yourself? He not only saw his smallness and his transitory character and his weakness, he saw his own sinfulness. And when a man begins to know something about the plague of his own heart and the blackness of his own heart, he's filled with a sense of terror and alarm. There is hell in everybody's heart by nature. And the offspring of hell is to be seen there. Jealousy, envy, pride, malice, anger, temper, conceit, ambition. These things, this brood of hell, it's in us every one by nature. And if you really could see it, you tremble at the thought that such things are in you, but they're there. He saw that, and it made him tremble. But I suppose that over and above all this, it was the realization of what would have happened to him if he hadn't met this blessed person that made him tremble most of all. He thought that he was very godly, very well-pleasing in God's sight. He thought he was going straight to God and the heaven. And he suddenly discovered that he was heading directly for hell. And he saw that it was one thing only that saved him from going there. And that was that this blessed Son of God, whom he'd rejected and blasphemed and persecuted, had not only loved him, but had even borne the punishment of his sins in his own body on the cross on Calvary's hill. There, he says, but for the grace of God, Go I, as John Bradford said in the 16th century in Smithfield, as he saw a felon going to death and to damnation. There but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. And this man felt something similar on the road to Damascus. What's a Christian? 
Well, what I've been trying to say tonight is just this. That a Christian is one who sees clearly that he would undoubtedly have gone to hell and wretchedness and misery and perdition were it not that God's own Son came from heaven to us and went to the cross and gave his life for him. A Christian is a man who's looked into hell and who knows that he's been saved from it by God's amazing, wondrous love in Jesus Christ our Lord. Have you known anything of this fear, my friend? You notice I'm not asking you tonight, have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? I've got a much more delicate and sensitive question. If you truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what it means. That you know that you are a hopeless, damned sinner. That you cannot save yourself, that no man can save you, that the world cannot save you. That you're under the wrath of God and hopelessly lost and damned and helpless. That's what believing in Christ means. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.